0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy, this debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? Andy McAfee, the author of More From Less, and a scientist, research scientist at MIT, Andy, you're the author of of many successful books, including The Second Machine Age. Your newest book, your latest book, is
1: More From Less. Explain. I read an essay in 2015 uh, written by a guy named Jesse Ozobel. And Jesse said that um, the American economy was using less, not per person, but less in total, iron, steel, copper, paper, timber, water, all these material inputs to an economy. And I thought, oh, this, this poor guy just doesn't know how to look at data. This, this cannot be correct. My model of growth was growth, like economies need more stuff every year as they grow. But I double checked and he was absolutely right. And if anything, I thought he was being a little bit too modest about some of the claims. And so I thought this is an amazing phenomenon. If we finally change this industrial age habit that we have of growing our economy while trading more heavily on the planet year after year, if we can finally grow while trading more lightly, that's kind of a big deal. And I thought that merited a book. So that turned into more from less.
0: But explain, Andy, what you mean in the sense that we seem to be trashing our planet, whether or not we're using more or less.
1: Yeah. And so the way the way I think about it is, you know, we've got this economy that takes inputs and converts them into outputs. And the outputs are the goods and services that you and I consume. So I can think of a couple ways that can go wrong and that can trash our planet. One is if we take all the inputs if we just run out of forests and iron ore and stuff like that. Another way we could trash the planet is if we run out of, if we kill all the living things as part of the machinery of capitalism. And to be really clear, we almost did that. We almost killed all the blue whales on the face of the planet. We almost killed all of the North American bison in the world. We did kill all of the passenger pigeons in the industrial era. So that's a real, real problem with this model of growth that we have. You can, you can make animals extinct. And then the third big problem is there could be nasty side effects from this growth. And the classic nasty side effect, as far as the planet is concerned, from economic growth is pollution. And we have polluted way too much. And currently we are polluting with greenhouse gases in an extremely healthy, extremely unsustainable way. So, yeah, all those things go on. But you are an optimist.
0: You believe that capitalism is compatible with a healthy planet. I
1: categorically believe that. I absolutely believe that. But but I want to be clear. I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not a utopian. I'm not saying that everything's going to be okay. I'm absolutely not saying that everything is okay right now. I'm trying to make a little bit different point, which is that if we want things to be okay, we know the playbook. We have have ironed out a fantastic playbook that eliminates the trade-offs between human prosperity and a healthy Earth. And the reason I can say that with so much confidence is we have successfully reduced other important kinds of pollution. So greenhouse gases are really, really bad, but they're not mysterious. They're a kind of atmospheric pollution. We do know the playbook for reducing it. We're just not following that playbook right now.
0: And how do you respond to people who simply say it's too late? But what die is cast?
1: Well, then what should we all do? Does that mean we should all just consume whatever we want? We should turn our backs on these problems because it's too late to do anything? I don't think it is too late. And I think that fatalism is extraordinarily unhelpful.
0: So, So lay out your playbook. Give me some concrete steps to fix this potential environmental catastrophe.
1: And I'll I'll use history to guide me on this one because you and I are both old enough to remember when the air in the skies over New York and London and Munich was disgusting, was full of pollution from industry and from transportation and the environmental movement, uh, helped us put a stop to that. And the reason I'm so intensely grateful for the environmental movement that started about half a century ago was one of the things they said was, you cannot keep polluting the skies. We, 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 we demand action on this. In the rich world and democratic societies, they got that action from their governments. People want to get reelected. And they realized there's a popular demand for lower pollution. And what's fascinating to me is some of the solutions that were put in place in America and Europe were really, really clever from an economist's point of view. And they had to do with two things. First of all, instead of just forbidding pollution, they, set, they made it expensive. They put a price on it. And they did this really uh, strange thing. It sounds perverse. They let companies buy and sell with each other the right to pollute. So you've heard of a cap and tra- trade program. All that means is the government puts a cap on the total amount of pollution and then says to all the companies in the industry within that, hey, go ahead and trade the right to pollute. As long as the total amount goes down, we're not going to mandate every individual contributor's path to lower pollution. You guys figure it out. The total has to go down. That was extraordinarily effective. The air over the skies in America when it comes to things like sulfur dioxide pollution is 90% cleaner than it was 50 years ago. The playbook works. And that playbook would be used, what, in, in cities like New Delhi? Uh, that playbook should be used as widely as possible, as quickly as possible, given our global warming problem. So if, if the U.S. and the EU adopted a price on climate, and there are, there are several different ways to do that. Cap and trade is one. A carbon dividend is another. These are all variations on the theme. But if a big chunk of the world economy did that, it would be super beneficial for the planet. would also spur a lot of innovation and lower carbon ways to get things done, which would be adopted by countries like India, even if they themselves didn't have the price on pollution, which they, they should for pretty solid economic and environmental reasons.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment and get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. At BetterHelp, their licensed professional counselors specialize in a number of expertises including depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping and trauma, and anything you share is confidential. If you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time with no additional cost. BetterHelp has 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states and is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours via text, chat, on your phone or through video, on your desktop, mobile web, Android and iOS apps. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, professional and affordable. As being a listener of Keen On, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code KEENON. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash KEENON. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counsellor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com KEENON. Now, back to the show. But some of... The problems with the environment today have never existed in the past. What's happening, for example, as we speak in Australia, uh, there are no examples of these in history.
1: I don't think that's exactly right. We have uh, long records of things like wildfires. I don't mean to minimize the tragedy in Australia right now. I I actually don't think it is completely without precedent in its scale or its severity. So we, we, we have a long track record of natural disasters. And I want to be clear, global warming is bad. It's real. It's going to make these things worse. The fact that we're seeing things now that we absolutely have never seen and we have no way to deal with, I, I simply don't believe that, even though things are getting worse. So what is the
0: role of the state, of politics, of government in, in, in fixing this stuff?
1: It's got a couple very, very clear roles. One is to either... Uh, forbid the pollution. And then we did that with CFCs. She said, look, you can't, can't use CFCs anymore to mandate reductions in the pollution. That's what happened with, uh, with a car catalytic converters or to put a price on the pollution there are different ways government can act to reduce pollution but andrew you know me well enough to know that i'm a huge fan of markets and economic freedom and capitalism markets by themselves don't solve the externality of pollution this is what you learn in every decent economics 101 course so government has a super clear role to play there with putting good regulation in place and enforcing it i think the other really important role for government is to say hey These animals are outside the market system. Just can't hunt blue whales or sea otters anymore. No. Can't trade in rhino products. Can't trade in tiger products. Fantastic. Or to say this is a national park. This is a marine park. You can't hunt or fish here. Or to say there's now a hunting season for bear. You have to leave them alone for this portion of the year. Very, very clear roles for government there.
0: Uh, Andy, you're an extremely rational guy. You're one of America's leading economists. Um, (laughs) You're 0 for
1: 2 so far.
0: Well, you're amongst. You're certainly a better economist than I am. Um, I might let you have that one. And you're certainly more rational than I am. Um, Isn't the core problem, and I don't know if this is a problem of economics or of technology, isn't the core problem when it comes to politics in America, there's a large amount of people led by the current American president who won't acknowledge that this is actually a problem.
1: That's a huge problem. And one of the things that really makes me pessimistic, even though I I think the evidence in general leads me toward optimism, is the polarization in America and many other countries is real. It appears to be getting worse, and it makes it a lot harder to to get important things done. In particular, if the the two main tribes in a country like America don't share a reality, don't don't share the same view of what reality is, how are we gonna get big things done? If, If we have a president who believes that global warming is a Chinese hoax, Where is action going to come from on this? That worries the heck out of me.
0: As an economist, what's the solution to it? Uh,
1: I don't know that economics has a great set of solutions to political polarization. We can describe the phenomenon, but I
0: I don't... But the problem isn't political polarization, is it? It the, the, The problem is that some people are simply not willing to acknowledge the validity of science.
1: Well, that that spreads pretty broadly. And I think climate change is maybe the most important way that irrationality is out there. There's hostility to GMOs. That is not confined to the right in in America or other countries. There is hostility to nuclear power, which I think is not based in evidence. There are all these departures from looking at the evidence and the science and, and going where it takes you. They're not confined to one political tribe. If they were, that might make things easier.
0: So we can't blame everything on Trump.
1: I... It's convenient, it's kind of, it might be comforting, it's not accurate.
0: Andy, one of your more more controversial uh, arguments is that nuclear power in many ways can save us.
1: And that shouldn't be a controversial argument uh, because the evidence is, is, is there's a lot of it, and it's very, very convincing that nuclear power, in addition to being very, very potent, very scalable, very reliable, very, very green, there's very like, next to no carbon that comes out. It's also the safest form of power generation that we have. Now, I can hear your your listeners freaking out. And, well, they've, they've all watched Chernobyl. And, and so have I. It was gripping drama. Uh, It was just really bad science, and it was actually not very faithful to history either. The final report about the Chernobyl accident put out, not by some fringe group, by the UN and a couple other organizations, said there were, I believe, fewer than, certainly than 100, maybe fewer than 50 radiation poisoning directly attributable deaths. Uh, There were on the order of 4,000 additional early deaths from Chernobyl because of elevated cancer rates. Uh, and what the report was actually interesting. It said those deaths will be difficult to detect because a lot of people die of cancer or anyway. And we're not sure we can even pick this up out of, out of the background noise. There was one additional wrinkle with Chernobyl, which was that it was harmful to the thyroids of a lot of children for, you know, radioactive reasons. And so some of those kids had to have their thyroids removed. That's bad. You can live a, a, a long, high-quality life without a thyroid. Of course, it's better if Chernobyl didn't happen. We should keep in mind, it was just about the worst nuclear accident, theoretically, you could imagine. The top blew off the reactor. And it spewed radiation into the sky for I forget how many days. This is as bad as it gets. So we know the upper limit on kind of, uh, on health problems. I'm not trying to minimize it, but when I think about the, I think a million people a year who die early because of uh, poisoning from pollution from coal generate, from coal uh, electricity plants, man, that's an easy call for me to make. Are there countries doing nuclear right? Their country doing nuclear more right. So France, I believe, gets about seventy percent of its electricity from nuclear. Sweden, I might be at that level. Belgium, I think, is pretty good. And there are some signs that people are warming up to it. There have been referenda in. Maybe, uh, excusing the pun, warming up. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even catch myself. There have been referenda in, I think, Taiwan and Korea uh, that have gone in a pro-nuke direction. Well, here's what I want to have happen. I want there to be a really fierce force race between renewables and nuclear for the energy transition of the 21st century. You and I and lots of other people agree that we have to get out of burning fossil fuels. And that's a thing that's going to happen over the course of the 21st century. It needs to happen sooner rather than later. And one thing that will accelerate it is if there's really nasty competition among the good competing green technologies. I just want nuclear in that horse race.
0: What about electronic vehicles? How important do you see... um the shift from gasoline powered car to to electric in in our fight to save the planet
1: it it it's a portfolio approach, right? We need lots of different solutions all at once. Transitioning away from internal combustion engines is a really important thing to do. I forget off the top of my head what percent of carbon comes from the transportation sector. It's, it's more than a little. It's a major contributor. So great. The, the internal combustion engine is a twilight technology. I don't know nearly enough to know exactly how quickly, you know, we'll get down to 50% EV, 80% EV. Quicker is better. You know, we're, we're heating up the planet.
0: Andy, what about the, the moral arguments that are being thrown around with increasing aggression these days about how we should behave as citizens, the, 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 the shaming movements telling us that we shouldn't be flying anymore, for example?
1: I think moral superiority makes people feel really good. I don't know how much it accomplishes. And in general... the the, the broadest version of that argument that i hear which is that we have to give up on modern life in order to save the planet uh not only is that kind of scolding i think it's categorically wrong Uh, how many people are there on the planet it's close to eight billion now if we all went back to foraging and hunter-gathering lifestyles if we started walking away from uh fossil fuels and started burning wood again we'd strip the planet bare in i don't know Months, if not weeks, we're here in the modern world. It is uh, more energy efficient. It pollutes less in most important ways, and it's better on our fellow creatures than uh, than our previous lifestyles were per person. Let's fix the problems with modern life. They're not insoluble at all. Let's not turn our backs on it.
0: Is it any coincidence that some of the more stringent moral arguments are coming from teenagers
1: That, that might not be a coincidence? And
0: I know you don't have teenagers yourself, but,
1: uh, but you know, you, you've met enough of them. Yeah, and it feels like you know that kind of some flavors of moral certitude come along with being a teenager before I, I guess maturity kicks in. Look, I am super grateful to the, the teenagers who took a day off school who went on strike to protest the climate. We need this energy. We need lots of different kinds of pressure for action, for change on global warming. I am super grateful to them. Uh, I, and one thing Greta said in her speech was, look, listen to the scientists, listen to the evidence. Fantastic, amen. Let's also listen to them about the solutions that will get us where we need to go with greatest benefit and lowest cost. Why has this
0: become so much of a generational issue?
1: I think I I think that's a good question. Uh, I I don't have a great answer. Maybe when these kids look ahead and think about living over the course of the 21st century with the changes that we think will happen with with the tail risk that's out there for catastrophically bad things to happen. I think if I were young and and had, you know, 80 years ahead of me of of a constantly warming world, I'd be pretty scared and pissed off, too. Andy, you
0: wrote the, the second machine age. Co, co, co-wrote it. Co-wrote it. Uh, but I always think of you as the author.
1: I uh, well, no, stop, stop uh, right there.
0: Eric, <laughs> you better not be listening yeah, to yeah.
1: this. One of the great things about my partnership with Eric Brynjolsson is that we 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 both look at this as a as a joint effort, and it's been wonderful to work with him on the second machine age and lots of other things. But I'm, I interrupted you. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, Eric certainly has more hair than you, right?
1: Uh, everybody in Eric's family yeah, has a full head of hair. It's it's a little it's a little uh, vexing. Um, But in all seriousness,
0: um, as the author of The Second Machine Age, perhaps the most uh, successful and certainly uh, coherent take on artificial intelligence, how does AI and the AI revolution play in to your optimism about fixing the climate crisis?
1: I think with this machine learning revolution that we're in the early stages of, we have the most powerful tools that we humans have ever come up with for letting us tread more lightly on the planet. When I look at some of the early research about how much efficiency you can wring out of a Uh, a power generation plant, or a data center, or any other piece of industrial equipment, just by throwing a lot of AI at the problem. We thought we were operating, I don't know, like at 90, 95% of of peak efficiency, man, we're not. We have a whole lot of room ahead of us to make our economy work better, to get more from less. To repeat the title of my book, we have amazing tools for that. They're just now starting to be deployed widely.
0: And do we need to reform the architecture of the digital economy? to fight against monopolies and trillion dollar companies? Or do you think that trillion dollar companies can lead this fight to fix the universe some or at the, least fix the planet?
1: Some of the smartest people that I get to talk to are on opposite sides of this topic. I know some really well-informed, smart people who think that we do have a problem with some of these tech companies that are too big, too powerful, oh. operate like monopolies, squash competition. Uh, and I know people who, who believe that, that, no, we've seen this movie before. Uh, I'm kind of in the camp that says that we have seen this movie before of big dominant companies. And Andrew, we both have been around long enough to realize we were saying almost exactly the same things about IBM, about Microsoft, about Nokia, about Netscape, about AOL. Man, I mean, technology is a tough industry to stay on top of for a long period of time. I'm not at all convinced that we now have permanent monopolies in technology. The other point is two other points. The first one is I will worry a lot more when these companies stop behaving like they're in a contested market. These guys don't behave like monopolists. They don't jack up prices. They don't cut their R&D spending. And then finally, you asked about climate change. The big tech companies have been some of the leaders about carbon neutrality. Microsoft just announced that it's going carbon negative. Great. Give me more companies like that.
0: You cite history a lot in terms of finding lessons from the past. Um, of course, the, the, the so-called working class today has a new name. They're the precariat as opposed to the proletariat. How does this shift in the nature of work and the, sort of the reinvention of uh, corporate capitalism in, in a more sort of entrepreneurial, individualistic sense, how does that play in to today's crisis and solution?
1: It's... Maybe the thing that worries me even more than global warming. So there are two sets of evidence that I look at that really scare the hell out of me. The first one is about atmospheric carbon and about the temperature trajectory over the course of the 21st century. Uh, The other one is about the here and now in the recent past. And it's about this sharp, sustained, unprecedented rise in deaths of despair in America. With drug overdoses, with alcoholism, with suicides, they are at rates that we've never, ever seen before. And the, the, the there are two in, incredibly important questions here. One, why is it happening? And two, what can we do about it? Uh, I do not think it's a coincidence that the deaths of despair are mapping pretty closely to, you know, the, the, the classic American Rust Belt, to these communities that have pretty clearly been getting left behind as technology and globalization race ahead. Uh, what do we do about that? The I think our toolkit for restoring economic vitality and restoring community to places where it's gone away, our toolkit is lousy for that. I don't think we have a lot of successes to point to. So, man, I, I, I hope those numbers come back down, the dust of despair numbers. They are not doing that yet. And you've heard me talk with confidence about a playbook for some things. I don't have a, a playbook for solving this problem that I'm confident about.
0: So you're suggesting that this this despair is... Very much connected to the disappearance of work, of jobs.
1: Uh, It's this, and let me try to say more than just poverty, and more than just income, and more than just poverty. I think it's connected to a lack of you know meaning i'll throw a bunch of nouns at you meaning dignity connection social capital interpersonal bonds when we see pretty clearly that when good old-fashioned jobs go away when the factory closes in a town a lot of those things also decrease and i i can't imagine that this depths of despair rise is unrelated to that It just doesn't make any sense to me so how do we restore all those things all those different kinds of social capital and the things that give a life meaning uh, how do we bring those back? Man, like, please tell me. Like, Well, Andy Yang
0: would talk about the guaranteed minimum income. Is that
1: one solution to this? Let, let, let's try it. Let's go run that experiment. I, I am personally pessimistic, but I, I'd love to be overturned by the evidence. Well, what other alternatives are there? Uh, let's try to figure out how to bring economic activity back to some of these communities. The, uh, but will, will AI create mass jobs? We don't have any evidence yet. I look at the numbers coming out every month from the jobs report. Man, we do not see jobs or hours work leveling off in the economy at all. We just don't see that slowing down. So the era of mass technological unemployment is not right around the corner. And we've been talking about the energy transition. If we accelerate that, that will create a lot of good old fashioned American middle class blue-collar helmet kinds of jobs. Great. Let's build solar farms. Let's build wind farms. Let's build nuclear reactors. America's infrastructure is in terrible shape. Let's fix that. That will. That will at minimum, it'll buy us a bunch of time.
0: And you let's end with predictions. You're too good an economist to really make predictions. Right, exactly. So let's have two. Okay. Let's imagine we don't fix this. What will the world look like in 50 years?
1: It, I'm sorry, in 50 years? 25. Uh, 25
0: I mean, uh, it, what, at with 20 let's say by 2050 in
1: 2050 and again this is outside the area that i I consider myself at all informed on in 2050 i don't think we have an unrecognizable planet even with global warming we have more bad news we have more droughts we have more heat waves we have displaced people we have some species under threat but i don't think we have an unrecognizable planet It's it's not blade runner it's not blade runner in 2050 now um If people keep on voting for authoritarians, we're in a politically very precarious spot right now. If this polarization continues, could we have another shooting war? That doesn't feel impossible to me.
0: And then finally, if your optimism is realized, we learn from the past, we behave responsibly, we acknowledge science, what will the world look like in 2050?
1: In 2050, we're on our way to this to the utopian sci-fi future as opposed to the dystopian sci-fi future. And I have, a, a, I have kind of a vision of what the utopian future looks like. We primarily live in cities because human beings like being together. Cities are very energy-efficient things to do. We have given huge amounts of land back to nature. We don't need it to farm anymore. We don't need it for pasture land anymore. So we've given most of the planet back to nature We humans live in pretty densely populated cities, but when we want to, we go back into the natural world to ground ourselves, to experience it, to be in communion with it. That's all awesome. Not to dig more mines and chop down all the trees and whatnot. I started by quoting uh, Jesse Ausubel talking about his work. I want to end with a great phrase of his that I learned. He says, our job as humans should be to make nature worthless. And what he means is economically worthless. Then we can go out there and enjoy what it's really there for. Let's make nature economically irrelevant. We human beings can do that. And that's essentially
0: what more for less. Yes,
1: that's the end goal of more from less. Let's make nature worthless.
0: Today's episode was brought to you by BetterHelp. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Keen On isn't just a podcast. It's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterdays, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, Please buy tomorrow's versus yesterday's. It's the essential analog
1: complement to this digital show.